2: You've probably heard of the Winchester Mystery House, the sprawling San Jose-Victorian mansion which they say was built by gun heiress Sarah Winchester to atone for the many deaths of those killed with the weapons that made her fortune. There's even a new movie about the ghosts in the house out now. But how much of that story is true?
0: It's
1: actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man.
0: Monster
2: talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith.
0: And I'm Karen Stolzner.
2: Today we're going to talk with author Colin Dickey about his book, Ghostland. And thanks to Rachel Lee for being the first listener to suggest the book to us. Other listeners also suggested the book, and we tried to get Colin on in October, but couldn't get things scheduled. So here we are now, and there's this new movie in theaters about the Winchester House, which figures prominently in Dickey's book. I'd already learned some of the real story about that case from Karen's research in her book, Haunting America. But Dickie expands on that material in interesting ways. Ghosts mean different things to different people and exist in all cultures in different ways, from haunted brothels to haunted electronics to haunted toy stores. The Ghost Slam book tells of the dead and the living in a moving narrative which should please both skeptics and believers. So let's get to the interview.
0: Monster
2: Uh, so first of all, welcome to Monster Talk. Thanks for taking the time to join us.
1: Thanks for having me on.
2: I, I really enjoyed Ghostland. And, um, unfortunately, it's a very
0: popular book.
2: Yeah, it is. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and it a number of yeah, yeah. our listeners, I think, had uh, suggested the book too. Yeah. It, oh, cool. Oh, that's
2: great. It seems like a really nice overlap with our audience. I think they'll enjoy this. I I, I think it's uh, while we've talked about a lot of the topics on there, and and Karen's done a lot of investigations directly pertinent to some of the stories you cover. Um, it 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 treats them in a very poetic way. I think it's nice. So um, yeah. We'll uh, continue to make compliments interspersed throughout the interview.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to object. This is all going fine so far. No, uh, no problems here.
0: Well, could we ask you for a little bit of an introduction? Could you tell us a bit about yourself?
1: Uh, sure. Uh, my name is Colin Dickey. I grew up in San Jose, California, so I grew up near the Winchester Mystery House. Uh, Spent a lot of time uh, living in L.A., sort of traipsing around the various uh, haunted places in in L.A. and and whatnot. Uh, Spent some time in New York. Uh, uh, Wrote a book in 2009, a a non-fiction book about famous people's skulls that had been stolen out of the grave. Um, And and a book on weird Catholic saints, and then I ended up writing this book on ghosts. So... um, yeah, so that's kind of the trajectory in uh, in a nutshell.
2: Famous historic skull duggery, right?
1: <laughs> right? Right, right. Uh, Mozart, Beethoven, Goya—all those guys had their heads stolen after they were dead. Wow. Yeah, that's only, only parts of Beethoven's head. I should I should clarify.
2: Oh, uh, only parts of his head were stolen?
1: Yeah, yeah. There there are two about four inch long uh, pieces of his skull that are currently in, in Northern California, um, about 30 minutes north of San Jose.
2: That's interesting. interesting. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, but anyways, uh, yeah, that, that that's not necessarily why I'm here, but it's a fun fact.
0: Yeah. <laughs> one, to, one to read next, then. <laughs> yeah. So
2: uh, we, we're, we're here to talk, I guess, today about Ghostland, which came out in, I believe, 2016. And right. we had tried to talk to you, uh, I, you know, around Halloween, but I imagine around Halloween you're overwhelmed with people wanting to talk to you. Sure, yeah. But, but every day is Halloween on Monster Talk. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, um, How did you come to write about ghosts? I mean, what, what led you to talk about that particular topic?
1: Um, well, so as I said, so I grew up near the Winchester Mystery Ho- Winchester Mystery House, um, which I always loved as a kid. And whenever people would come to visit, I'd always, you know, take them there. Um, and I I love the story of, you know, this woman who was building a house that was supposed to never be finished, and there was this kind of labyrinth to keep ghosts at bay. Um, you know, that ghosts that had been killed by the Winchester rifle, and I. I thought, wow, this is such an amazing story, and what a what a fascinating biography uh, it would be to write a you know biography of Sarah Winchester. So actually, you know, uh, about 2009, right after my first book came out, I sort of started doing research, thinking I could just sort of kind of write a, a quick biography of Sarah Winchester, and, and found out that uh, much of the the story, at least the story that you get on the tour, is is not based in in fact, um, and is is somewhat of a of an invention. And I, you know, I went from being sort of, you know, disillusioned sort of uh, to being kind of doubly intrigued. You know, the, the question was then, you know, not, you know, uh, necessarily, you know, what is the true fact, a true story so much as, you know, why did this, why did this story, why did this myth, why did this fable take on, uh, you know, such a life that, you know, it, it, you know, has lasted for almost 100 years now and it's influenced, you know, everything, everybody from uh, Walt Disney to Stephen King, and I, you know, I, I just got really interested in why this house, why this mythology, and I, I started to broaden it from there and sort of just ask that question, you know, why do some houses, some hotels, some prisons get a reputation for being haunted and others don't, And mm-hmm. and why do some stories... Resonate with with the public, and other ones just get you know kind of tossed aside after a while. So that was kind of what led me to the to the book and kind of broadening out, sort of starting with San Jose and then broadening out to more and more places around the country, kind of trying to explore different different versions of of that kind of uh, you know creation of, of of sort of American mythologies.
2: Can we talk about the Winchester House a bit? I, I think right now there's a movie in theaters that seems to be. Uh, I'm going to put air quotes, based on the Winchester House. But,
0: yeah, considering well, it's used
1: the, the box office, it's not going to be in theaters for much longer, but yeah.
2: Yeah, but yeah. It, it, it seems like it's based on the folklore and not on any kind of reality, and maybe even fictionalized of that. As, I don't want to say that's strictly fiction, but it does seem like there's not much to back up the legends around it.
1: No, I mean it's it's really it's a really bizarre thing, and yeah, and I, I saw the the film the weekend it came out and reviewed it for the New Republic, and um it's it's gotten I think it's got like a ten percent uh, rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, it's not quite as bad as you would you would be led to believe. It does, yeah, as you say, it does sort of take the the story that you get on the tour and and posit it as true. Um, and even some of the other reviews I've seen that, that um, you know, I saw a piece in Vanity Fair that was like, you know, this is the actual story behind Sarah Winchester, and then they proceeded to get a bunch of details wrong, too. So it's it's a fascinating sort of layer upon layer of, you know, almost like a game of telephone about this woman's life. And and part of the thing that's, that's really interesting slash difficult is that we, we simply just don't have a lot of material from her. We don't have a lot of letters or diaries or first-hand accounts um, you know which is a little bit odd considering how wealthy she was uh, you know historians will tell you most of the time the records that you have are of wealthy people because they tend to leave a lot of records and those things tend to get preserved it's you know it's usually poor people who you know you know don't keep diaries or you know that stuff gets thrown out after they die so it's a bit unusual, that we don't have more information from her, but, but what little we do have, we've got a couple letters in a Connecticut historical society and a couple other sort of things here and there, you know, overwhelmingly points to the fact that she was, she was saying that she was not, uh, you know, undergoing a kind of endless period of pathological mourning. And, uh, she did, you know, we don't have any evidence that she was a spiritualist or anything like that. And so, um, so we, we, it's sort of, we don't have definitive proof otherwise, but we have nothing to really support that, that main mainstream story of her. And so, uh, it, it becomes difficult to reconstruct an actual sort of piece about her life, but the, the film, yeah, it, it takes a lot of leverage it, 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 runs with the kind of story that you get on the tour and, uh, and, and, and it kind of just becomes a kind of standard horror movie at some point.
0: So, uh, I there's a biography about Sarah Winchester and I can't remember the author's last name. I think it's Sarah Ignacio or something. Uh, so Mary should...
1: Joe Ignafo or something. I'm not exactly sure actually how to pronounce it, but it's IG. But, um,
0: that's a, a very good book that gives a very fair uh, overview of Sarah Winchester's life and really does debunk a lot of the stories which are told uh, on the tour. And the tour is very interesting. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have been on it before themselves um, but it's told very robotically. Um, that they, the story hasn't changed for many years, and I've been on it several times myself. But can you tell us a little bit about uh, some of the things that the current owners have done to maintain the uh, the myths about Sarah Winchester?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting, and you know, and I and I know the people who are, I've been in touch with with the general manager, and you know, and I I, I as much as I, I don't. You know, believe the story that they tell on the tour is is factually correct. i, um, I I'm hesitant to be too disparaging because as one of the things I, I write about in the book is, um the Winchester house sits across from one of the most expensive malls, or at least when it was built, one of the most expensive malls ever built in america. and and the real estate that the Winchester house is on is is, I don't know, very very worth a lot of money. So you know, so they're even though it's on the historical register, um, you know, they have to find a way to keep people coming to it, given its its high visibility and its high high retail uh, potential. And so you know, I think what they have done over the years is taken this house, which um, you know is a kind of architectural wonder, a kind of one of a kind architectural landmark, and found ways for it to be. Uh, relevant and interesting to successive generations. So, uh, so yeah, as you say, I mean the tour focuses a lot on uh, the fact that her her husband and and infant daughter both died, um, and that she then went into a sort of period of pathological mourning, um, and, a, and 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 attended a, a, a medium session with a, a, a spiritualist named Adam Coons. Who told her that her house was being, or that her family was being haunted by anyone who's ever been killed by a Winchester rifle? Uh, you know, none of that. You know, of course, we have any verification of. And, and one of the things that that Mary Jo Ignafo points out in her book, which I thought was was a really sort of elegant line of reasoning, is that spiritualism is, is fundamentally a um, a communal. Effort. it's it's uh, you don't do it by yourself or you, certainly you didn't in the 1880s um, you know it was it was something you did with a group of people and the fact that we there was an incredibly vibrant uh, and well-documented spiritualist community in San Jose California at the time and you know Sarah Winchester's name never you know appears on any of those uh, uh, you know news reports is, is is a pretty strong indication and and uh, what you see in the film where she's sort of Having these these one on one séances where it's just sort of her alone in a room uh, is certainly not uh, in keeping with with spiritualism as a uh, as a historical development. So um, I completely lost track of whatever your original question was. I was just kind of rambling. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry
0: no, I was. Uh, I, no worries. I was thinking in terms of uh, some of the oddities in the house, like the windows in floors uh, and the the motif of number 13 everywhere and that these weren't placed there by Sarah Winchester. These were placed there by the, I think it's the Brown family that currently own them. Yeah,
1: well, so I mean, certainly, yeah. Some of some of that, I think, is, you know, there were genuine, you know, Tiffany glass with, you know, 13 precious gems embedded in them and, and other things like that. But um, I think once you start going around the house looking for things that add up to 13, I mean, you could do that in your own house and find you know half a dozen rooms with 13 nails or 13 lights or 13 books on a shelf or something like you know i mean you'll find it anywhere and and in the house uh in the ballroom there's this this beautiful silver chandelier that has 12 candles and then there is this 13th candle kind of welded onto the base in a kind of awkward jaunty angle uh,
0: Thank
1: that, you the, for you know, pointing the, this one out. <laughs> oh, okay,
0: That's always yeah, bugged
1: yeah. me, that one. <laughs> yeah, and the tour oper- operators are like, well, she had to have 13 candles. And again, I think Mary Chognofo is, is quite right in suggesting, A, that this was added later, and B, yes. uh, Sarah Winchester was wealthy enough that if she wanted a chandelier with 13 candles, she would have had one custom-made. You know, she wouldn't have had to Absolutely. tack on an, <laughs> an extra one, you know, like a yeah. like a DIYer at the end there. So. Yeah, <laughs>
2: That's pretty funny. I, I, the one that struck me was the uh, the way, by word of mouth, the legend, there's stairways that lead to nowhere, like stairways, plural. And then right. apparently there's just the one, and that there's probably a the good explanation. Pretty
1: much that. just the one, yeah. And again, I mean, I think that's that's kind of a bummer because I think a lot of people are kind of let down on the tour because they are expecting this kind of MC Escher-esque kind of mm-hmm. labyrinth. And, you know, there's the one stairway that... that sort of ends in a in a wall that, you know, she was either going to kind of build something and forgot about it or, you know, architectural plans change or something like that. Um, you know, there's a couple of other... There's a, a closet where it seems pretty clear they just removed the floor um, because it opens up under the kitchen below. So there are things like that where, you know, the, you could see them just sort of making kind of minor modifications so that they could play it off as this kind of labyrinthine house. But I think... Again, I mean, for me, as a, um, you know, just as somebody who's, who's you know, taken a dozen dozen or so tours in that place, I mean, I feel like the house is cool enough as it is just standing on its own. I mean, this is actually the thing that I, I quite like about the Winchester movie is as silly as a horror movie is it, it is, you know, they had access to the house and they, they shot within the house. And so, you know, you, you get these really great tracking shots, um, of the house that you know you you're never going to see on a tour you know you're never going to be able to sort of hover over like a like you're in a drone or something and it really kind of brings the house alive just through the cinematography in a way that I like.
2: Would you say that was worth the price of admission?
1: We well, I'll go read your um, review.
2: We'll put a link to your review in the show notes.
1: <laughs> yeah, as I said, um, maybe maybe catch it on Netflix. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's not worth the price of you know fifteen bucks or whatever, but. Um, but you know, it's it's there are worse films out there. You know, I I'll say that.
0: <laughs> so. It's cheaper than going to the Winchester Mystery House, that's for sure.
1: That is also true. Wow. <laughs> yeah, cause the tour is not cheap. No. I only
2: yeah. I've only it is, sorry, I was, I was going to say I've only been out there once, and I I just couldn't make it work with my time schedule. But I really wanted to go visit.
0: Uh, oh, you will have to do that. Yeah,
1: the thing to do if you really want to weird it up is to. Um, take the tour at the Winchester Mystery House, and then while you're still buzzing from the endorphins, uh, drive over the five minutes to the Rosicrucian Museum, which is also in San Jose, and is, uh, if you're not familiar, it is an Egyptian temple in the middle of the suburbs. It is is built to look exactly like an ancient Egyptian tomb, and it's filled with all these um, Egyptian artifacts, and um, it's just sitting there surrounded on all sides by these little unassuming suburban tract homes and it's it's a totally bizarre place um and uh you can you can do both of them in one day and and really get your fill of all the weirdness that san jose has to offer
2: nice
0: lots of weird stuff in san jose
2: (laughs) while reading your book you, you i think this site in particular and some of the others figure into this concept of dark tourism while you were doing your research did you notice any trends around this sort of rise of dark tourism
1: yeah, I mean, uh, you know, yeah. As you as you hinted that, I mean, w- I was really interested in the way in which different historical sites have really tried to keep themselves relevant. And so, um, so the Merchants House Museum in in Manhattan is another place that, you know, has been open to the public as a as a sort of historical tour uh, since I think the '30s. But um, only recently has it started really embracing, you know, the the story of it being haunted and sort of bringing in you know ghost tours and, and things of that nature. And um, again, I think part of that is because real estate in Manhattan is uh, really valuable. and if you want to keep a historical site open, you've got to find ways to, you know, pay the bills and whatnot. But I also think that it is a sort of evolution over time into people figuring out that um, this kind of tourism is a way, of interacting with the past that, um, you know, I think more and more people are, are kind of open to and receptive to. I mean, it's often frustratingly a kind of distortion of the past, but it's still, uh, you know, I still think there, that people have that genuine desire to sort of interact with the past in a, in a kind of different way. And so, you know, for the book, I I went to a bunch of different places, you know, Salem, Massachusetts, and New Orleans. I took a lot of ghost tours. And some of them were really fantastic, and some of them were pretty unbearably hokey. Um, but you you see this kind of almost kind of ad hoc strategy um, from place to place, where people are sort of experimenting with you know how how does the public sort of like see this building, and how do they what kind of stories will resonate with the public, and and what uh, what do they what do they hope to get out of, you know, two hours walking through an old house? And I think that's a really kind of fascinating uh, story, particularly because it changes so much from place to place.
0: So what are some of the places that you went to in New Orleans, because it's very rich in folklore and stories, and I'm just curious about which places you went to and what you found?
1: Yeah, I mean, New Orleans is so filled, and, and an early problem I had was sort of trying to figure out how to keep it all narrowed down. Um, one of the places that, you know, is, is most famous and is, is very much not open to the public is the LaLaurie Mansion, um, which uh, got sort of roped into a season of American Horror Story. Um, you know, this, this woman who supposedly, uh, you know, kept these, these slaves that she tortured and sort of did horrible unethical ex- medical experiments on, um, and it, you know, after she and her husband were sort of driven out of town. Um, it kind of, you know, changed hands over the years. It was a tenement slum for a while, and that's when, you know, these young kids started getting the idea that they could charge people a nickel uh, to to see ghosts in the in the attic, and, you know, that involved, you know, one of their friends dragging chains around the attic and making spooky noises. Um, you know, it was for a time, it was a, a boarding school, or not a boarding school, but a, a, a public school that was, Sort of involved in a in a race riot um you know over the years it's uh you know it fell into sort of various private hands it was owned by nicholas cage the actor um who lost it in foreclosure and um now it's owned by from what i was told it's owned by somebody from texas who is not there very much at the time and so mostly it just sort of sits empty and uh you know, it's uh, the ghost hunters I talked to. All of them are salivating to get inside of it, but none of them could. So I, you know, I, I, I did a lot of research a lot of time with the Lurie Mansion, and 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 then the other place, kind of on the other end of the spectrum, that I I spent time with uh, was uh, Charcoal's Burgers, which is a high-end burger joint um, in the Magazine District, and uh, you can you can get all manner of uh, bison and alligator and turkey burgers with all sorts of toppings and local craft beer and it's it's haunted uh by a woman who was killed during hurricane katrina uh, she was hit by a, a drunk driver and her body was uh left out in the street for um you know a couple days just because uh things were so out of control during hurricane katrina and the the emergency services were just completely non-functioning and so so Charcoal's Burgers uh, has, uh, over the years, been thought to have been haunted by by this woman's ghost, and so I tried to kind of kind of pair those two those two buildings as kind of two different ways that New Orleans has has responded to its own history, uh, you know, particularly its own tragedies over the years through telling these stories of of haunted places. And I guess had I had I more time, I could have. Done a whole book on New Orleans because there's so many fascinating uh, supposedly haunted places in that in that town.
0: There's your next book?
1: <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. If anybody gives me any more money to write another one of these, I've got a whole other slew of places I'd like to go. But uh, as of yet, nobody has come
0: forward. So it's very interesting to hear about uh, newer ghosts because we uh, just often associate with New Orleans just the older stories and are going back hundreds of years. So it's interesting to hear that new stories are being created all the time there.
1: Yeah, exactly, and I think New Orleans is a great example of a place that because they are, as a city, kind of, um, you know, okay with that part of their legacy, this kind of, you know, haunted aspect, and obviously, you know, they embrace it for for the tourists, but because it's kind of more of an open part of their culture, um, it's, it's commonplace to then fold in kind of more recent historical traumas and tragedies into that same narrative. And so, um, so yeah, so, you know, even more recent things like Katrina and other, um, uh, sort of fresher wounds are, are, are easily folded into a, to a longer history of, of New Orleans and its ghosts.
2: I thought it was really interesting because the whole book, you talk about a lot of different geographical places and a lot of ghost stories. And you talk about what, the evidence is that supports it, and, and what seems to be legend. But you clearly are not going around just to debunk the ghost stories, and you're. It's not exactly like you're precisely celebrating them. You're. you're it's. But, but you, it's. I I found it incredibly compelling. It's really a really good book. Uh, can you? What what drove you to take this particular angle on on the on these stories?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm enough of a just sort of naturally curious person that I, I want to know the real story. Like that's just who I am. And so when I would hear these stories and I would think that's, that's a really crazy story, I would immediately want to know, you know, is it true? You know, I mean, um, you know, like the Lemp mansion in in St. Louis, Missouri. I mean, you know, that's a pretty crazy story and it's one that is factually accurate. So, so fine. You know, I mean, it, it is the story of this pretty wealthy family who, um, you know, over the space of a couple decades, uh, multiple members of the family all committed suicide for, for different reasons and at different times, and so the house is supposedly haunted by, you know, this family that were all kind of driven to, to suicide, and, um, you know, and, and so it's, so that, that is, you know, unlike Sarah Winchester story, that actually happened, and, um, you know, so, I, so part of me is just sort of fascinating with, you know, what is the true story? What, what do we know about these places? Um, and and then beyond that, I think I was just really curious as to why we tell some stories and we don't tell others. You know why why does desistra- the you know I mean there are lots of stories in which you know multiple members of of a family have committed suicide and it's sort of horrible and tragic and you know something I think we we want to prevent, but here's one case in which it's sort of oddly celebrated or at least not celebrated. It's sort of drives the the history of this house and i was you know what you know why you know is it because these people were wealthy is it because um you know you know what what is it about these people that that has taken this sort of family tragedy and blown it up into um you know i guess you could say a tourist attraction and so you know and, and i and then i was sort of equally interested i mean you know i went to Richmond, Virginia, you know, which is one of the most haunted cities in America. And I was, you know, just gathering up all the the various ghost stories about, you know, downtown Richmond, just kind of, you know, figuring out what was there and what, trying to make sense of what they all meant. And, and uh, it just sort of suddenly struck me at some point that every story that I was reading uh, involved white people. And I thought, you know, this is this is the heart of the Confederacy. This is the, you know, the second largest Slave trading market, where, you know, untold you know, enslaved americans were were brutally beaten and died. And how come how come there aren't any ghost stories about these people? You know, so so a lot of it, I mean, the, there was there was a couple of guiding principles for the book, but in a lot of cases, I would just kind of be investigating a, a particular location and kind of let the specificities of that location and and the stories that I was reading kind of suggest to me, you know, uh, you know, the research method, as it were, sort of to try and figure out, you know, exactly what was going on here and, and what made it different or special than other places.
2: Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week
1: on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about, the stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness,
0: philosophy,
2: UFOs, ghosts, or, say, Bigfoot...
0: Some people enjoy the waves or whatever, uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics
1: audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and
2: Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and are useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the Big Dinosaur Podcast.
0: Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents.
2: Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Yeah.
0: Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution
2: talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur injuries, (laughs) paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases.
0: A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you, you mentioned the uh, the most haunted city, or one of the most haunted cities in America. Did you find as I've usually found that most cities claim to be the most haunted in America?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean New Orleans will claim it. Salem, Massachusetts will claim it. Uh, yeah, Richmond will claim it. Uh, Savannah, Georgia, claims it. Yeah, so it's it's pretty common. And again, it's because I think at this at some point people realize that there is a, a tourist market to be made, and so. You know, it's it gets folded in just like everything else in, in a in a city sort of boosterism.
2: Yeah, we don't have a good uh, uh spiritual census to really get the hard numbers, do we? <laughs> right,
1: exactly. Yeah, no exactly. and what would qualify and yeah yeah.
0: So So you mentioned uh, Salem. What did you find there?
1: Um, yeah, I mean Salem is is bizarre. Have you have either of you been up, up that way?
2: Not Unfortunately,
0: yet. I haven't. I've always wanted to go there, but Me no, too. I haven't made it.
2: I want to do this sort of combination H.P. Lovecraft-Witchcraft tour at some point in my life.
0: Yeah, well, so Salem, um, again, I mean,
1: it was, you know, home to this, you know, historical injustice and then, um, you know, kind of moved on with its life. And then in the 19th century became, the for a time, the wealthiest city in uh, in the country. Uh, because of they, because they had a really strong shipping uh, industry and and were importing and exporting a lot of um, cotton and other things, and so um, and then in the 20th century it it started to sort of go back to this kind of legacy of the Salem witch trials and it, it decided to um, sort of capitalize on this in this very weird way, and so. Um, so the the police cars all have a a witch and a broom on the on the door, and the town logo I think <laughs> is a, a witch and a broom, and uh, there are, there are all sorts of these you know hokey uh, you know crystals and incense shops all around the the the, the town. And you can get your your fortune read, and um, you know lots of just sort of kind of hokey new age tourism stuff, and then uh, some very. Um, heartfelt and serious commemorations of these people who were innocently executed, and it's it's very it was very hard for me to uh, kind of balance those kind of competing emotional registers. You know, I mean, it was very you get kind of quickly annoyed by uh, the statue of Samantha from the show, Bewitched. Um, You know, and then and then a block over, you're sort of you're you're faced with the legacy of of these men and women who were killed and 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 the enormity of the weight that that is sort of bearing down on you and so so he's found it to be a very fascinating strange uh strange place to visit um and also it's just a lovely little New England town with a great museum and uh you know it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an it's an odd but nice place so
2: i guess they've recast their image
1: <laughs> yeah and the, you know and it's and they seem to be really sort of um you know, I mean, what I what I think I sort of I, I finally sort of decided about about Salem is that it's a place in which um, we we have an awareness of history, but very little sense or engagement with what that ha- history actually means. You know, we 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 throw. I mean, especially you know you know now. I mean, you see the the phrase witch hunt being thrown around almost on a daily basis, and so we uh, you know as Americans have a really quite uh, cotton to the idea of of witch hunts and, and whatnot, and yet we also sort of um, strangely kind of celebrate the witches of Salem as though they might have actually had supernatural powers. You sort of see this, you know, in everything from Longfellow's poems about, about the Salem witch trials to the aforementioned bewitched. You know, I mean, we sort of want to believe that witches actually are supernatural. It's, it's just very confusing. It's a very bizarre muddle of of responses to this this historical incident, and, uh, you know, different people sort of have a different reaction to it, and I, um, you know, it, it, so it was an interesting sort of cognitive experiment to try and sort of parse all these different ways in which the term witch was being used in and around the, the town of Salem
2: because it reminded me of uh, the sort of way that, that Disney has taken like the grim fairy tales and turned them into these sort of sweet and friendly family movies. But if you go back and read a lot of the grim fairy tales, they're brutal and horrific. And it's like we've sort of sanded off all the rough edges and reinterpreted it to be something completely different from what the original source material was.
1: Right, exactly, yeah. And, and again, I mean, I think that is just sort of, Part of what we do as as you know, humans. I mean, I, I, sort of like how we respond to history is by sort of evolving things. And uh, sure, I mean, who doesn't like a, a Cinderella story where uh, they chop off their toes to try and jam them into the, the glass <laughs> yeah. slipper, or however the original is. I mean, you know, I love it. But um, but yeah, I guess that's not gonna that's not gonna fly at the multiplex this weekend. And so you know, things sort of change over time and. Um, you know, I, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I mean, I, uh, I grew up during a time when, um, some of the weirdest kids movies ever made were just being sort of released without any sense of whether or not they were any good or not. Um, and, and they were all pretty traumatizing, but I, you know, I loved them and they, they really sort of sharpened my, my imagination in a way that, you know, the little mermaid or the lion King wouldn't have done in the same way. So, Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, I, I like the weird stuff, but I, I get that it sort of has to change over time. And I get that, that people will take different things out of the history that they want. I mean, that's, that's just sort of the nature of, of the changing sort of generations.
0: I was just going to comment that it was probably something you found with most of these places that you investigated, that kind of bit of sweetness of, uh, that blend of, Tourism and humor about the place, and the tackiness, and uh, blended in with the history and the seriousness about what truly went on in that place.
1: Yeah, it, yeah, it is. You're right. It's, I mean, it was most acute in Salem, but you find it everywhere. You find this uh, kind of mixture of, you know, here's a horrible tragedy in which somebody was brutally murdered, and also here's a fun t shirt that you can get about said brutal murder. <laughs> Um, And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's odd. It's, um, you know, one of the places uh, that I went to um, was Portland, Oregon. And there's a, there's a park where uh, there's supposedly the ghost of this woman who was, who was murdered and kids go up all there all the time to have these little seances and, you know, try and commune with her. But uh, she was murdered in 1949. And her younger sister is still alive. Um, you know, and I interviewed her younger sister, and, and you're, you're talking to this woman about, you know, her personal tragedy about, um, you know, the, the, you know, I mean, she, she recounted to me, I don't think I put this in the book, but she recounted to me when uh, her sister's murderer uh, finally got the chair, um, and, you know, and her mother talking about how, you know, now he's not going to harm anybody else, and, you know, her mother breaking down and crying and now, you know, this woman who is in her, I guess she's probably in her 70s or 80s, you know, she, you know, crying on the phone with me and you, you get the sense like this is not, this is not a, a necessarily a joke for, for people, especially with these newer stories and, and so, you know, with the book I really tried to kind of walk that line, like I didn't want to be a complete killjoy because I, you know, I, I get that, I get that excitement and the frisson of, of being in a strange place and, a, you know, dark house in the middle of the night. I, You know, I get it, and it is a lot of fun, but I also, you know, wanted to be sort of aware of how we tell these stories and what it means to tell these stories um, as pure entertainment without any sort of regard for the, the victims.
2: Yeah, and you talk a lot about the, the real horror stories are often, like, completely hidden by these ghost stories, and this is a good example, and then some of the slave stories... Uh, do you think there's a relationship there? Do you think that the ghostly stories are consciously being crafted to to hide this? Is it more of an organic thing, or what, what do you think is going on there?
1: Yeah, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's conscious so much as I think you're right, a sort of organic um, thing. I mean, you do find when you start, you know, kind of making taxonomies of these stories, you find the same stories uh, from place to place. You know, I mean, they become generic after a while um there are a lot of places where you know it's clear that a given house is a little creepy or a little bit odd uh, but nobody really knows much about the house so they just kind of throw in a kind of generic ghost story oh so and so was killed here or whatever and then they kind of make up a story to go go with the oddity of the place and you know i found that a lot and i um you know and, and you do after a while you start to see that you know some stories are are really popular um, for in terms of generating ghost tales, and some are are not nearly as popular. You know, so uh, you know, violence towards women tends to be a thing that you see in you know ghost story after ghost story. And you know, what do you make of that? You know, I mean, is that that a lot of you know consumers of ghost lore's are um, you know actually women, and the way that women sort of. Um, tend to respond to, you know, novels like Gone Girl and, um, you know, like sort of, you know, murder mysteries uh, um, or or what, you know, and, you know, as you mentioned, I mean, you know, stories about slaves um, are not as nearly prevalent as stories about slave owners or Confederate soldiers, you know, is that because white Americans don't really want to deal with that legacy, they don't want to face it head on, you know, I mean, there's, it's it's kind of hard sometimes to make a hard and fast ruling, but you do see a lot of similarities that suggest kind of broad trends in how we use ghost stories both to kind of approach history while also kind of keeping it at arm's length.
2: Well, I, I, the way you end the book, you talked a little bit about digital hauntings, uh, about Tom West's house with the weird Internet of Things, and uh, it, it reminded me of, uh, I've had some friends die over the past year or so and Facebook has become haunted like I (laughs) I don't I don't believe in ghosts but I find myself devastated when these sort of digital artifacts pop up out of out of nowhere suggesting hey you haven't talked to this person in a while why don't you say hello because they're dead you know and you know it's their birthday. You want to say happy birthday? I would love to, but they're dead. Uh, and it's just, oh, it's devastating. And I, I, I wish I could stop it, but uh, it, it, it's, I yeah, think. Yeah,
1: it's, it's so bizarre. It's, you know, I mean, the way that Facebook and other social media sites work is, you know, of course, they want you engaged. They want you on the site. They want you looking at ads all the time. And, the, like, the worst thing that can happen, I mean, I've kind of stopped using Facebook, um, and so I'm, I'm getting emails all the time from Facebook basically saying, you know, come back to the site, check out what your friend mm-hmm. just posted, you know, because they're they're petrified with the idea that you would stop interacting with them, but they have no frame of reference if you stopped interacting with them because you hate Facebook or because you are, are no longer among the living, you know, and it's sort of this very odd um, sort of con- conflating of two entirely different states of reality. And so, so yeah, so when, when, you know, I'm off, off the site, I'm sure Facebook is telling my friends to, you know, wish me happy birthday and all that crap. And, and it'll, it'll continue after, you know, after I'm gone, well, hopefully I'll outlast Facebook, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) knock on wood. Um, So yeah, so it's, it's very odd that we, we've built these social media sites and these algorithms that are, are completely, Unable to understand death, and I think that's a really um, fascinating yet frustrating problem. And um, you know, it'll 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 evolve over over time. But in the meantime, it, it does it does become quite awful for for people who you know, when you're still mourning somebody's loss, to have this algorithm sort of throw them sort of their memory kind of unexpectedly back up at you um, just because the algorithm is panicked for some weird reason.
2: Yeah, it reminded me of uh, Ray Bradbury's story There Will Come Soft rains. It's like it's come true in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, Yeah, that's, I mean, when I when I first started doing that chapter I mean, that that Ray Bradbury story suggested itself immediately. It's just this idea of like you know, Facebook is like the house that just keeps on serving tea and putting out breakfast and reciting the temperature and we'll continue to do that even after nobody's using it anymore.
2: Yeah, it's 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 uh it's weirdly prescient.
0: Yeah. So on your travels, I'm curious, did you encounter a lot of ghost hunters and people who were uh, legend tripping, so going to replicate and experience hauntings?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly I. I tried to find those folks wherever I could just because I'm, I'm totally fascinated by them and I'm fascinated by so many, so many of them have completely different reasons for, for doing this. I mean, you know, I talked to some people for whom they consider themselves, you know, hard scientists who are trying to prove the existence of wormholes. Um, I talk to other guys for whom, Ghost hunting was clearly, and you know, clearly these like two guys. This was their way to have fun away from their wives on the weekend, and so they would go out and hunt ghosts, and then they go to a strip club. You know, like it's sort of like like everybody seemed to have a kind of different reason for for doing that, and and so it's it's such a bizarre subculture. I did kind of run afoul of some rival factions in the Los Angeles ghost hunting community and uh, got accused of of uh, being a, a, a mole trying to undermine some sort of ghost hunting group so after that happened I kind of had to be a little bit more circumspect about how far I, I got involved with these folks but I yeah I um, you know whenever I would go to a place I would I in addition to you know doing whatever history I could I, I would you know do a Google search and figure out who was giving tours what were the local paranormal communities who was available and who you know who would have coffee with me and talk to me about, you know, what they did and why they did it.
2: So you also talked a little bit about the idea of uh, w- when do we really die? And I, I love the uh, sort of that African concept about there's the death that you have when you stop being alive and then a different death when everyone who knew you has gone. Mm. Um, right. But it seems like that's something you must be thinking about a lot based on your bio. Uh, it, it, so what what is your uh, – interest in this idea of death. I mean, this, it, what is the order of the good death? Tell me more about that.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, um, so, the order of the good death was actually founded by my friend, Caitlin Doty, uh, D-O-U-G-H-T-Y, um, who is a, uh, an actual licensed mortician and also a, a fabulous writer and uh, internet personality. and And her, mission is to really kind of overturn a lot of the assumptions that the the, uh, funeral industry sort of makes on our behalf and sort of encourage people to um, sort of reclaim uh, death and dying and uh, burial rites and, and mourning for ourselves and sort of make it meaningful and whether or not that means you know, a green burial or, um, you know, a sort of uh, burial on your own property, Um, you know, I mean, she wants to kind of open up the possibilities so that, um, you know, I think that, um, you know, too often when when somebody dies, you're you're already emotional, you're overwhelmed, you don't know what the proper protocol is, and then, you know, a a funeral director shows up, uh, says, we'll take care of it all, and then, hand you a bill for $15,000 or whatever. And, you know, and, and so I think she's trying to sort of push back against that. Um, so that's the order of the good death. And so, you know, that's that's what they do. And they, they put together something called Death Salon, which deals with a lot of these issues uh, annually um, that, that all of your listeners should go and, and learn more about. Um, I mean, for me, I just... I. Ever since I was a kid, I've been completely terrified of dying, and I've found that the, the one thing that makes death easier for me to understand and not fear is to just spend all my time writing and researching about it. And so I have, um, you know, in, in many ways, this has just become a way for me to sort of, again, kind of explore kind of how, how we face death, um, how we process it, how we mourn, How mourning changes over time um you know i mean why did the victorians have these elaborate rituals of mourning and uh you know why why does mexican culture have this fabulously colorful uh day of the dead sort of tradition and you know how do you know what how do these things sort of change in time and place and uh, um i just remain perpetually fascinated by, by this and i think the the exploration of ghosts is yet one more avenue, because, you know, I mean, you know, as you say, with, with Facebook and whatnot, I mean, this is, ghosts are another way in which we, we mourn, and another way in which we process the dead, and, um, you know, the amount of people who have told me stories about, you know, seeing the ghost of a loved one, and then finding a way to make peace with them, and then having that ghost sort of, um, you know, disappear, it's sort of, whether or not you believe in the paranormal, or you think that's all psychology, it kind of doesn't matter, that, these are both kind of ways of thinking about uh, grief and, and processing the time after a loved one's gone.
2: Oh, I just realized that uh, we have actually talked to another member of the Order, uh, Dr. Paul Coutineris.
1: Oh, yeah, Paul Coutineris, yeah. Yeah, he, he came is, and
2: he talked is, about is, demon-possessed cats, and we had, my yeah, goodness, yep. we had a lot of cat <laughs> puns. Yeah, <so. laughs> yeah, he's
1: pretty fantastic, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I, I will never be able to top his is charisma or stage presence. And uh, so you're, you're getting definitely second-tier order of the good death stuff today.
2: <laughs> you're, you're doing fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so over the course of the entire book, you talk about ghosts and hauntings from ancient Rome to modern times. Where do you think ghost stories will go next? Have you given any thought to what's the future of hauntings?
1: Um, you know, I, I think we've we've hit on it already. I mean, I think the way in which... Um, you know, the digital landscape is going to become the commons of the future, right? I mean, ghosts used to, you know, they used to haunt the town square, they used to haunt, you know, the local bar, they used to haunt the local cemetery. And now, you know, we're congregating, you know, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, and um, more and more, I think, we're going to find ghosts following us there. And so I think in many ways, the future is how these algorithms, how these social media sites and how these other sort of electronic forms of communication will, will process our relationship to the dead. Uh, so I think that's going to be really fascinating and I have no idea what it's going to look like.
0: So another place I haven't been to, uh, the Mustang Ranch, and you talk about this in your book. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the hauntings associated with that? I didn't know it was meant to be haunted by who or what
1: yeah I mean, I was actually sent there uh, by a um, like a, a men's magazine. I guess in Britain we would say a lads magazine because it's not quite wasn't quite pornographic per se, but uh, I was sent there to to profile the owner and um, and the the profile got canned. but i I spent two days with um, with these these women who work there and the the management. And and just as a side note, uh, the the madam mentioned in passing that that the Mustang Ranch was incredibly haunted, and so I you know I kind of kind of had some time to kill, so I just started plugging people with questions about the ghosts in the Mustang Ranch, and um, it's it's haunted. Uh, most people would say by. Um, uh, what's his name? Oscar uh, Ben. Oh, I'm got to blank on his last name. Uh, he was a he was a he was a boxer. He was an actual professional boxer who was Bonavita. That's right. So he supposedly haunts the parking lot. But of course, the Mustang Ranch has been literally picked up and moved to its current location. It was somewhere else originally. So the the odd thing is that he's managed to follow the house to uh, to its new parking lot. and He haunts that new parking lot. Um, you know what I what I was really interested when I was talking to the women who work at the Mustang Ranch is um, you know to a person they all described just what an emotionally taxing job it is. I mean these these women um, you know in addition to all their other talents and requirements basically are, are working as unlicensed therapists because so much of their work is is emotional um, and and it's it's just emotionally exhausting for for a lot of them you know completely regardless of of the physical requirements of the job and so so I was I was really interested I guess in a community of that we don't necessarily think of as a sort of high emotional stress environment but that's exactly what it is and how uh you know some of the women there have used those ghost stories um as a way maybe to kind of process or manage a little bit of that stress I mean if you're if you're under a lot of anxiety, and you you know maybe see some flashing lights out of the corner of your eye or something like that. It's maybe a little easier to believe that you're sort of surrounded by the paranormal, as it makes it maybe a little easier to sort of process some of your own internal stress or something like that. I don't know. I you know again you know I get into it more in the book, but uh, but I was I was really fascinated with how that particular community, which seems quite singular, you know, quite different from you know any other. Uh, employment that one might have in in the country um, would have a kind of different relationship to the paranormal than than the rest of us.
0: That's different—a haunted parking lot.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but, but it it was a very sensitive uh, chapter. I thought you did a good job. Um, I I mean, the book is very moving and very poetic, and you you have an enviable uh, handle on prose. You. Bastard. <laughs> He's not jealous. We're
0: back so. with the part. I like the yeah. of the podcast. <laughs> Backhanded no. ones here. It was
2: really no, it was really good. I really liked it. Um so I, I I unreservedly recommend it to our listeners. So I think that they'll really like it too. Um we do try to finish up our interviews with uh, this sort of common question, at least for the first time people come on. So that's uh what's your favorite monster?
1: Um uh, Right. So, um, I, you know, I was thinking about this and, um, a monster I quite like is the, the Japanese no face ghost, uh, which, uh, you, your listeners might know from the Miyazaki movie spirited away, but this is a sort of common, common ghost. Um, and actually while it's common in Japan, you don't find it outside of Japan except that I found it in Hawaii and, um, if I had had just like an extra couple of weeks and uh, you know a couple hundred bucks to fly to Hawaii, I would have put this in the book. But there was a a drive-in movie theater in in, in Honolulu where you would go into the women's bathroom and there would be this woman with long black hair uh, at the sink washing her her hands. And, and when you went up close to her, she would turn to you and you would realize that she would have no face, that you know just it was just sort of smooth skin like an egg. Um, you know instead of any facial features and that's a that's a common uh, Japanese ghost and what I like about them um, is that they for the most part are not out to harm you they're not out to make your life miserable they're basically it's they're like pranksters because they they sort of appear they freak you out and then they're gone you know and that that seems to be the extent of their malevolence is just to sort of kind of freak you out a little bit and then split. So, I, you know, that seems like a kind of nice kind of monster. So I'll go with that.
2: I like it.
0: Uh, I'm just left wondering why it, women's bathrooms are always haunted.
1: Right. Uh, oh, yeah. I, in Las Vegas, uh, like, I was looking at haunted casinos, always the women's bathroom, always
2: haunted. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It's so that you never have to go alone, because I know that's...
0: <laughs> they have it, but they, people... they're often haunted by men. That's the, the problem. That's crazy. Right. Or, of
1: course, <laughs> men just who just have no concept of what could possibly go on in a woman's bathroom, so just assume that it's haunted.
2: Yeah, I don't know. That's, uh, that's, I never really thought about it. I, I, is, it is it really... You, I mean, I know you, you guys are like serious, but uh, is it actually...
0: It's a, it's a thing, and yeah. uh, I, yeah, I, I can't remember it now uh, for the show notes, but there's some, some TV show where they actually do cover, or it could be a, a blog, maybe, and they cover women's bathrooms being haunted because it's a it's a stereotype it's a thing i've found it a lot too everywhere i've gone to the women's bathrooms always haunted
2: interesting um allegedly allegedly, <laughs> allegedly yeah. I uh, tried to look into it. My research stalled. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Oh, it's time to go.
2: (laughs) Fine. Okay. (laughs) Colin, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Uh, Thank you. That
0: was fascinating. It's
2: really a good book. Uh, Do you want to talk about what you're working on now or what your most recent book is?
1: Uh, yeah, so the book that I'm working on now w- is on conspiracy theories and along with UFOs and cryptids like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster, so it's sort of, uh, similar in vain, sort of taking another thing that we don't take all that seriously and, uh, kind of trying to figure out kind of what is, is behind it all, so, um... So it'll deal a lot with the Illuminati and the Freemasons and uh, UFOs and Area 51 and uh, Bigfoot and uh, the, the Federal Reserve and a- anything you could possibly want is going to get crammed in there. So that's that's what I'm working on now. So that's why my
2: head's a little. Well, that would it. be of no interest to okay. our listeners. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right up our alley. Like all of that, we're gonna have to have you back. Yeah, let show. us
2: know when that's done. That okay. would be fantastic. And yes. if obviously, if you decide to include a chapter on people who love monsters but are skeptical of them, we'd love to talk to you about that. So,
1: yeah. oh yeah, well, I mean, I definitely, I mean, there will definitely be a lot on on cryptids. So that, and and particularly, I mean, I think what I'm interested in is is the relationship between cryptids and and what normally get called monsters, um, and and how that's changed over time. So. So, yeah, so I would come back and talk about
2: that. Right. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. All right. Well, uh, feel free to mine our archives if you if you want. We've got lots of episodes out there that may have links that would be pertinent to your research. So That's yeah. right. Okay. Thank you again. And uh, okay. we'll end this yeah. call here. And I really appreciate everybody making time today. Thanks a lot.
0: Thank you, Colin. Yeah, thanks Take for care. having me on. <laughs> this was super fun. Monster Talk.
2: You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith.
0: And I'm Karen Stolznow.
2: You just heard an interview with author Colin Dickey about his book, Ghostland. A link to the book and several other items that we talked about will be in the show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talks, an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests and may not represent the opinions or views of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. If you'd like to know their views and opinions, you can just creep into the old sanitarium late at night. Turn on your EMF detector, and once you've got that up and running, then you can fire up your digital copy of Skeptic from their online app on your smartphone or tablet device. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks so very much for taking the time to listen to our show. you can now subscribe to skeptic magazine
1: digitally just grab our free skeptic magazine app currently compatible with ios android pc mac kindle fire kindle fire hd and blackberry playbook head over to skeptic.com magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite skeptic content